This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today. This is his second appearance on Unstoppable. And when we created the podcast Unstoppable, I'm pretty sure that uh, we probably had this gentleman in mind. Stephen Kotler is a four-time New, New, York, New York Times bestselling author. He's written 13 books. Ten of them have been bestsellers. Four of them have been on the New York Times bestselling list. Two of them have been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. And I've only just discovered it wasn't until he was actually in his 40s that his mum told him that he was proud of him. So this guy is phenomenal. Now, what's most important about you, Steve, which we're going to drive right into here, you've just written your latest book, The Art of Impossible, but you literally are the number one expert in the world as far as I'm concerned when it comes to understanding high performance, understanding the frameworks for people peak performance, but more specifically, the concepts that enable people to achieve those states uh, that you refer to. And I'm pretty much sure that would, pretty sure you would be considered the doctor of flow. Great to have you on the podcast, mate. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back with you. Now, it's fair to say you, uh, you've got a little bit of a book addiction. Uh, I'm going to assume that you've probably read a lot more books than you've written. Um, just out of curiosity, random question, how many books do you think you have read? I can see your library back there. I'm not yeah, sure, I'm not sure if that's... So, so we actually tried... Somebody on my staff wanted to try to figure this out. Um, they came out somewhere around 5,000. We we th- if it's out. a guess it's a it's a yeah. guess but 5000 was the number they came out with yeah wow um, and uh, i'm going to assume that I, I can tell you that in like in my library in my house there's a couple thousand two three thousand books i've lost a lot of books over the years and the reason you can, what's funny about them is my note i take my notes in the back of the books so literally i like you could go through the books and my notes are still in all of them so i have actual proof cuz i sometimes don't believe it that i've read these books <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I dare say at one stage when your when your legacy uh, is is continuing to grow and your estate is put on the market at some point by your 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 kids, those books are going to be worth an enormous amount of money. But there is a question I, I do want to ask: Is Harry Potter in there in, at all? Like, is the no. Harry Potter series? No, in there? there's no Harry Potter series in here. I'm sorry, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure Harry had some flow concepts that uh, that uh, that he put out there, but they're a little bit more magical. Mate, you literally are the doctor of, of flow as far as I'm concerned. I'm someone who's obsessed with performance. You know, I've had the great privilege of being able to train with the Navy SEALs, the European Special Forces, elite professional athletes, and not just train with them, but I consult back to all those people as well with what I've learned and what I've taken away from other areas. How is it? We'll just start there because I know we touched on this in the last podcast, but for those who didn't hear it, how is it that you stumbled across this, this arena? So... It's a great question because it's also sort of at the it's the center of, of the new book. So, um, in a sense, so when I I became a journalist right out of college, basically um, in the in the early nineteen nineties, and journalism is this wonderful career where you get to exploit your curiosities, anything you're deeply passionate about that that you can find work. And I was super passionate about two things at that point. One was uh, human performance, and really focusing on the neurobiology, the neuroscience. In the 90s, we neuroscience advanced to the, to the point that we started to understand human behavior. And I was fascinated, how do humans work? And at the mechanistic level, and neuroscience seemed like the new key. And simultaneously, I was fascinated with action sports, and surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, and the like. And 
If you know anything about action sports in the 1990s, you know that it is considered the great era of quote-unquote impossible, where more impossible feats, things that had never been done before, and were really considered never, not ever going to be done, were not just being done, they were being iterated upon over and over and over again. And I, and I was reporting on this, and um, one, it was, you know, it was amazing. Nobody had ever seen anything like it in surfing and skiing and rock climbing and snowboarding, mountain biking. The level of performance kept going up and up and up and up. And it was astounding. And more specifically, what really caught my attention is I was living with these, in these communities with these athletes. I knew a lot of them. They were friends with me. And most of the people I knew had horrific childhoods. They came from very bad, tough beginnings. Um, broken homes and whatnot. They had very little money. They had very little education. There was incredibly high-risk behavior all over the place. There was a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol. And normally, you don't have to be studying psychology and neuroscience to know. You put those things together in a community, you tend to get jail and death. What you don't get is a group of people who are routinely reinventing what is possible for our species. And that's what was happening. So the first question was, what the hell was going on? I quickly took that question of how are these athletes doing the impossible into pretty much every domain imaginable. I took them out of sports and into business, into science, into technology, into altruistic endeavors, any, and, and basically just went hunting for times where things that we believed were formerly impossible became possible. This was my beat as a journalist for magazines like Wired and the New York Times. I would cover sci-fi technologies that turned into sci-fi technologies. It didn't matter where I went. What I kept seeing, one, was the state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. Right? I kept seeing the state of optimal performance showing up with the athletes, showing up with the technologists, showing up every domain I was looking at. And then I was seeing a, a handful of, of other things as well. But flow and how it, came, it kept coming up in these experiences. And I was obsessed very early on figuring out how does flow work, the neurobiology of flow we were just starting to decode it in the 1990s and late 1990s. And I got, my mentor, Dr. Andrew Newberg, was one of the first people sort of in there. And uh, so I um, really have spent the past 30 years from that point on saying, okay, when, whenever, whenever we see extreme performance improvement, what the hell is going on under the hood? And, you know, the answer is that there, you, you actually see very, very similar things no matter where you look, and there, there's really good reasons for it. And, I, and this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll kick it back to you because it's been a long, ridiculously long answer to your question. Um, when I say peak performance, when we're talking about peak performance, when we're talking about anything that, that my research has uncovered or the, really the field has uncovered over the past 30 years, is peak performance is nothing more, nothing less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That's all we're talking about. Flow is at the center of that biology, but there's a bunch of other things going on um, and, you know, figuring that out has essentially been what my career has been about. And it's a pretty exciting one. I am curious, though, because I didn't ask you this question last time. Did you discover a connection with all those extreme sports people who had those backgrounds, you know, coming from, in some cases, you know, what would be considered dysfunctional environments, broken homes, you know, addiction present, abuse present? Did you find any connection? And if so, what was the connection between those backgrounds and those upbringings and these individuals who were able to iterate on what was considered impossible. So, low was the foundational connection. And so, whenever you're talking about peak performance, right, I said it's a sequence and a system. And, I, you know, I alluded to that. You really, there's a, the human biological cognitive performance skill set is really it's a set of skills that we file under motivation. 
right? They're at, it's wider than motivation, but we call the motivation as the heading. There's a set of skills that sit under the heading of learning. There's a set of skills that sit under the head of creativity. And then there's a set of skills that sit under the heading of flow. So whenever you see peak human performance, you're seeing individuals maximize the, all those sets of skills because there's nothing else going on. So you're looking at the very same thing. And the way to think about that, they sound like four random things. Let me just talk, put it in a sentence for you so you can wrap your head around the picture. The way to think about this is, and by the way, when I say skill sets, so I'm going to use the term motivation. When psychologists use motivation, they mean what most people mean, the energy required for action, right? But motivation is a catch-all term. It means extrinsic motivation, stuff that's outside of ourselves, money, sex, fame, intrinsic motivation, curiosity, passion, purpose. They also mean goal setting and grit. All of those skills get lumped under motivation. So skill sets, but motivation is what gets you into the game. Learning is what allows you to continue to play creativity is how you steer, especially if you're steering towards, you know, high, hard, impossible goals where you're not quite sure how to get there. You create a decision-making problem solving to get there. And then flow is how you amplify the whole package, right? Usually beyond all reasonable expectations because that's what flow does. It's a magnificent kind of accelerant to all our skills, as you know. Um, I'm going through the process right now of um, training my dog. I've got a brand new, beautiful German Shepherd puppy. Um, I have aspirations to get myself a Malinois. And I'm going through the process of training this dog to be a bit of a lethal weapon. Um, and I know this is going to sound like an, an unusual question, but it kind of relates to the last one that I had around the correlation between people's childhoods and their ability to have the levels and the motivations and the skill sets to perform at high levels. <coughs> One of the things that I've discovered that makes certain dogs... Have you got any, you've got an interest in dogs, right? You've got yeah, a, I mean, you're talking to a, a huge animal rights advocate and I run an yep. animal sanctuary. My wife and I run a dog sanctuary. Exactly. So you're, you're familiar with the personalities of the different breeds, you know, Malinois and German Shepherds and how they are. In most cases, very high drive dogs, very high motivation. They've got very high levels of motivation to learn and very high levels of motivation to work. But what I found really interesting when I was comparing the breeds between the German Shepherd and the Malinois, the Malinois have a very strong lack of self-preservation. And as a result, they're willing to throw themselves into increasingly more dangerous situations that other breeds, including Shepherds, may not necessarily go to the same lengths in order to you know, get the job done, so to speak. So I am curious, and again, I know this is a left field question, is there any connection or correlation between high performance, high flow states? And I know X games and you know being in flow and playing chess are not necessarily the same things, but is there a correlation between self-preservation and the ability for people to perform at certain levels that would be considered above and beyond the capacity of what's normal? A super hard question. Um, and there's a couple of different ways to answer it. Um, So let's go back to your early childhood question for a second because I want to touch on something and then we'll go into this. One, the one thing that I will tell you, whenever I see success, true success in the world, it doesn't matter, business success, um, sports success, athletic success, whatever, I, everybody I've met is running from something just as fast as they're running towards something. The most successful people I've met have... and. One of the ways I always explain that is it is really hard to get to any place worth going to. It just is. And you need a lot of motivation. And that double motivation of running away from, th from something and running towards something seems to be very beneficial. I will tell you, in peak performance, the one group of people 
um, and I haven't done research on this at all, so I could be talking out of my ass here, but the one group of people who I worry about the most and, and see the wobbliest are people who had really easy times in childhood and high school. Like everything went super, super, super well. And they were, they were attractive. They had enough money. They were popular. They were good in sports. They even did good on tests. Those people, it's, uh, those are the people they, they, some of them do very well in life, but you don't often see them at the spectacular level. You just don't. Um, which I'm not saying that's a death sentence if that's where you're at and who you are, because obviously there are exceptions everywhere. In fact, um, I'm when we're done with this call, I'm doing a call, I'm doing a, a live event with four very famous professional athletes, um, some of the most decorated action sport athletes uh, ever. And of the four, one of whom I know has had that childhood that I just described and said, hey, this does not tend to produce this. So he had that very easier that easier childhood and, and it did in his case produce uh excellence so not always i guess there was one exception to my statement that i can think of now but as a general i do think that i think that's true um i uh do you think there's a correlation i know this is a bit of a side note here and i hope you don't mind me smashing your chain of thought because i can see you're in it but do you think there's a correlation between those early childhood environments and being exposed to certain stresses which would be considered a threat, which on some respect would give people a conditioning towards risk taking because most people don't take a risk because there's a correlation between, oh, it's a risk, there's a threat there and it's, there's a stress response. Do you think there's a correlation there between these early childhood experiences and being exposed and I guess you could say conditioned to threat, conditioned to stressful environments that makes them go, you know what, my risk profile unconsciously is going to be a little bit greater? So I think there's a handful of things um, that may fall under this category and i don't know right i don't know I, I don't i normally would dodge questions like this because i don't <laughs> like to answer questions where i'm just talking out of my butt but here's what i theoretical think, here's what I mean, theoretically what i would what i would say is this so risk tolerances are genetically hardwired and established by early childhood experience they are um they're usually set up and and sort of they're not locked in you can change them over time but it's slowly but usually by 10, 11, 12, they're, they're pretty set up. Um, I, what you see is with difficult childhoods, you, uh, you see a lot of, uh, grit training, first of all, and grits are very, like we are incredibly, one of the, the research shows consistently that human beings are unbelievably gritty. We are, our grit levels, everybody's grit levels are super deep, but the only way you find out how gritty you are is by being pushed to the edge again and again and again. And that's an uncomfortable process for anyone. And so uh, it's harder to train, though there are ways to train it very effectively. Um, I think that kind of childhood trains that. I also want to say, now, there's huge swatches of people who come out of these communities where the disadvantages crush them, right? There's too much yeah. anger. There's too yeah. much resentment. There's too much spite. Yeah. There's too much of that stuff. That said, if you can get past those things, one of the other things that I think is really, really important is if you grew up in, if you go up in dangerous environments of any kind, um, unpredictable environments, you also get very good with people. You learn to, you have to, you have to learn to read people very fast. Now that 
gives you a level. And as a result, you often gain a bunch of self-awareness along the way, because the only way we read other people is, you know, read ourselves at the same time. Mm. And those skills, the self-awareness and the emotional awareness of others, you know, if you can spin it around and turn it into emotional intelligence, we know, for example, there's, you know, there's, I talk about emotional intelligence a bit in Art of Impossible, but, you know, the, the famous work on emotional intelligence is that IQ gets you hired and EQ gets you promoted. So one of the things that all, you also see that it's often not talked about, I always tell people in life, you know, one of the things that we know, for example, about flow and a bunch of other stuff is that training your strengths is, is really a great thing. Uh, in flow science, this is not my work, this is uh, Dr. Martin Seligman's work and Christopher Peterson's work, but they found that if you work in such a way as you're using one of your core strengths in a novel way, um, it tends to lead towards a higher flow lifestyle. So they, they basically say, identify your top five strengths, try to use one in a novel way, do them in like three month trading periods kind of thing and cycle through them. And um, that tends to lead to much more flow. Um, <clears throat> when you're identifying your strengths, one of the things I always tell people is the real world identifies strengths. However, the real world, you know what I mean? Strength finder, you, there's, you all can find all these diagnostics, but truthfully, everybody has what I like to talk about as invisible skills. And the example I like to give is if you grew up in a difficult household where mom and dad were fighting a lot or drinking a lot and fighting a lot, um, and you know how to defuse an argument or you need know how to defuse a drunken argument, which is a skill set that a lot of people actually acquire, right? The hard way, but you acquire it. Um, that's a real world skill set. You can defuse an argument without it escalating. You can, you know what I mean? You have, those are, those are mm. real people skills. There's something mm. there um, that can be built upon as well. So I, um, you know, that stuff can easily break you, but if it doesn't, it leads to wonderful things. And I, the other, the final thing I want to point out on the, this is that what the research is really clear on is every one of our so-called Achilles heels, our kryptonite, whatever it is, those are all our biggest, our biggest weaknesses. That's the foundations for every one of our superpowers, right? Mm. And we, and that for sure, you build your superpowers so cool. out of your weaknesses. And the, the final thing I want to say on this, cause it's such a, it's insidious in the, in the, world today, and I don't know where it came from, there's this idea right now that's been floating around the, the high performance world that if you're broken, you somehow got to fix what's broken in you before you can start going after your goals or, or trying for peak performance. And um, I think nothing could be farther from the truth, right? Like peak it's just the same biology. And I think that usually the, the easiest way to fix what's broken is actually to aim to start aiming bigger and, and moving in that direction mm. because the skill sets, the same skills that will get you from subpar back to zero will get you from zero up to Superman. They're the same there. I mean, mm. there's some different stuff you might want to do if you're talking about extreme trauma and deep trauma and things like that. But other than that, as a general rule, you're dealing with the same skill sets, which is one of the reasons I think you, you see a lot of what we're talking about. Mate, People who started so out really broken ending up at the top. And there's more I want to ask on that, but I'm going to put my selfish desires aside here because this book that's just come out, The Art of Impossible, you know, you said yourself, this is the first time you've really put it together in a really uh, practical blueprint that people can take away. So when you look at what you've created with The Art of Impossible, what is the framework? Because The Art of Impossible is essentially, it's it's relating to peak performance. Yeah. So let's, let, let's, let, let me define that. Let me, yeah. So let's, first of all, let's start with the term impossible. The book is 
in a sense, neurobiological lessons learned from watching people accomplish what I would term capital I impossible. It's really, the book is really meant to be used. It could be used by anyone, but it's really meant to be used who I wrote it for, in a sense, was people who are going after what I would call small lie impossible, that which we think is impossible for ourselves. Let me give you a handful of examples. When I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, blue collar steel mill town, 1970s, it's from the time I was a little kid, I don't, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. There was no internet. There were almost no books. There was no one around to ask. It was like one morning I woke up and I said, mom, dad, when I grow up, I want to be a hobbit, right? For all that, for all I do about like where, how to, how to become one, right? Like that was essentially what I was saying. That's a small lie impossible. Getting yeah, right. paid doing what you love is a small lie impossible. Rising out of trauma is a small lie impossible. Becoming world class at anything is a small lie impossible. Becoming a successful entrepreneur is a small lie impossible. Um, becoming Are you saying small I or small lie small possible? Small I, 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 like I. Edera, gotcha. letter I. My Midwestern, yeah. flat Midwestern accent is crushing me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, and then, but I, I, the other thing is this. Most importantly, I don't care if you're interested in capital I impossible, small I impossible, or just, I want to go to work next Monday and I'd like to be a little more productive, right? So the there's a scale, is, there's a small well, aisle and a capital. So depending on the level of- No, fit. this is where I, this is where I was going. The tool set's the same. Okay. There's just gotcha. your biology, right? You either get your biology working for you rather than against you, or you don't. It's really what it is. What is different, what has changed, and what, what's at the heart of this book that I think is neat is for a long time, I mean, 20, 30 years, we've all seen bits of this. Like we've, there's books on flow and there's books on grit and there's books on gratitude or mindfulness or flow or all the different components that, that we talk about so much, learning, creativity. What has happened over the past five, six years because neuroscience has advanced a lot is we've started to realize that, holy crap, this stuff is a system designed to work in a certain way, in a certain sequence and if you bring the skills online this way in this sequence, the way it, they were sort of, we evolved to do it, right? Um, you go so much farther, so much faster and pardon the uh, alliteration, but with far less fuss. Mm. So where does the framework start? Like if there's a framework to the art of impossible and someone, you're going to sit down and go, okay, I'm going to teach you how to align your biology and your psychology and your physiology to do things that maybe right now you don't think are possible. Where do you start? Yeah. So where it's does a the great book start? It, Yeah. It's a book. The, so the book starts with motivation and let's talk about where the research starts. The research into motivation says you've got to start with extrinsic motivation. So external motivation, people, don't like this factor, especially in the spiritual new age community. They're, they're like, no, it's all about passion. And, and it sort of is in a second. We'll get there. But um, the research is really clear. We have to be able to earn enough to cover our basic needs with a little left, mm -hmm. less over for discretionary spending because anxiety, more specifically norepinephrine cortisol, which is what's underneath anxiety, are such blockers to big performance. If you cannot you know, if you're wondering, where's my meal coming from? How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to take care of my wife, my kids, my family, my husband, whatever it is that's on your plate? If you're, you, you're probably too scared at a foundational level, right? You have to solve that problem first. Once that problem is solved, and so the research, this is uh, not my work. This is Dr. Daniel Kahneman's work, the Nobel laureate, 
Um, Danny did most of this work, but he found in America, this is about 10 years ago, that for a single family household, that number is a lot lower than most people think for a family. So husband, wife, kids, $75,000 a year. So you can pay all your bills, take care of everybody in the family and have a little leftover discretionary income. So it's less than most people think. Um, I don't know what that would be on an individual level, but it's not a ton. Once that's lined up, you need to turn to intrinsic, internal motivators. If you're interested in performance, I'm not saying when you make a little bit, uh, you can cover your bills and have a little bit left over. We stop wanting things like money, sex, and fame. Of course, we keep wanting them, right? But if you're really interested in amplifying performance measures, productivity, learning, creativity, motivation, all that stuff, you, intrinsic drivers become more important. They take over. And there are, there's a ton of intrinsic drivers, but for this conversation, five matter. There are big, a big five, and they're designed to work, as I said, in a specific order. Curiosity is the most foundational human motivator. It is um, it's neurobiologically a little bit of norepinephrine and a little bit of dopamine. It is designed to be built into passion. So what we call passion, which is another big intrinsic driver, is really biologically nothing more than the intersection of multiple curiosities with some wins in that area. Some you know, easy little successes is what I was trying to say. But would you say that the curiosity is important to, because some people stop once they get the, you know, they might be curious, they might find something they enjoy, but then if they don't keep, if they don't have a high drive of curiosity and they don't keep looking, they may not find something well, that's, that's even the, more The enjoyable. thing is, that's why curiosity is, just, when, when you talk about passion, you're talking about the intersection of multiple curiosities. I always tell gotcha. people a single okay. curiosity, there's not enough energy there over the long haul yeah. to sustain yeah, you. It's yeah, going right. to go away. You've got to find, and by the way, if you, if you want to send your listeners to the passionrecipe.com, www.passionrecipe.com, yeah. this chunk of what we're talking about, we built uh, it into a little, like a, a free um, interactive workbook that teaches people how oh, to right. do this. Cause so many people want to know how to do this. It's in the book. It's in the art of possible. Everybody read the book, go to Amazon, buy dozens of copies. But when you're done doing this, <laughs> if you want something for free, Go to the passion recipe. So curiosity is designed to be built into pa passion. Passion is designed to be coupled to something outside of ourselves, which gets you purpose. Once you have purpose, which is an even bigger motivator. And when you say bigger motivator, what I mean is... Is that number two? No. Curiosity is, that, no? is one. Okay. Passion okay. is two. Purpose right. is three. Once you have purpose, what does the system want? Freedom, autonomy. That's the next big driver because you want the autonomy to pursue that purpose, right? You've got, you've got a purpose. Now you want the freedom yep. to go after it. What do you want after that? Mastery, the skills to go after it well. So wow, the really place to well. start is literally, you got to solve the extrinsic, which I'm yep. assuming a lot of your listeners already have. Um, and then you move into this stack. And once you're through there, it goes on. The system is, then you add goals. And what the biology, what the science tells us is you need three levels of goals to get the greatest lift in motivation. You need a mission level statement for your life, like mission level goals. I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe. That's a mission level goal. Underneath it, you need high hard goals. These are the one to five year steps that feed into that mission level goal. But if I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe, this would be, I want to go to college and get a degree in journalism. I want to get a job on a magazine or a newspaper to learn how to write, or I want to start a blog. I want to you know, write a book on cooking and blah, 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 take your pick. 
Those are high hard goals. And then you need clear goals. These are your daily to-do lists. And they all have to be pointed in the same direction and they all have to be aimed at your entire stack of intrinsic motivators. Um, and the way to think about this is just that like peak performers, they want as much fuel as they possibly can get, right? Because it's hard to go A to B. So you want, you get your externals, right? You get seven, eight hours of sleep a night. You get plenty of hydration, plenty of nutrition, and you get your fats and your carbs and your proteins. And you, right, same way you want to stack and align all your internal motivators, right? Because mm. it's hard to go A to B, but if you get them all pointed in the same direction, the lift is incredible. Bonus, by the way, if you get all these things pointed in the same direction, they tend to produce a lot more flow in your life. So it's one mm. of the, some of these things are flow triggers, clear goals, and some of the intrinsic motivators, these are all flow triggers as well. So you get everything pointing in your same life. Part of the reward is you get massive flow as a result. Hmm. I, I'm looking at this, these intrinsic stack right here and I'm like, wow, you've really just refined and you've gone and polished the carbon that was, I guess, a lot of that. Because I've seen the work from uh, Chick, Chick, Chick Me Sent Me Hide um, and also Dan Pink who put together Drive the Surprising Truth about William, which to me is, a, I guess you could say, he's, he's compiled some incredible research, but you really put an, a stack in here that kind of makes a lot more sense, especially at well, the curiosity piece. Dan, yeah, Dan just didn't, Dan was very, Dan did great work. He really did. Stuff. And I think at the time he wrote Drive, he probably, that was about as much as we knew. A yes. lot of the stuff that comes afterwards. So Drive is based on um, most of the work by Odici uh, and Ryan are the, the two main scientists whose work he was drawing upon, also a guy named McClellan and a couple others. Um, they, from the time that uh, they did that work, they got very jiggy on the neurobiology. So what's underneath it? And it was when you started to peel back the hood and look at it neurobiologically that all the other stuff sort of started to fall into place as well. So some of this is not that any of those guys did bad work. They did great work. Chick something high is a, is a god and and dan pig's a smart dude you've polished it and that's to me because i'm a i'm an absolute advocate of his work uh and i've read i've Drive. just got i got i in a weird way i got lucky because i'm the like i showed up at the time the neuroscience showed yeah. up right i've sort of helped bring that in um a little bit and definitely popularized a lot of those ideas but like they were working in an area at a time before we could look into the brain and really figure this yeah. stuff out. So I had a little bit of an advantage. So these um, these five intrinsic is that the framework of the art of impossible and just combining no, these that's, together, so or is this that's just where step one? the art of impossible starts with motivation? That's yep. the the intrinsic. That's just the intrinsic. Then we do goals. Yep. Then you do there's so grit comes next, and the research shows. Grit's often talked about as a single skill, but the research shows. So you've separated grit from mastery. Uh, yes. Well, so grit gets you. So what you don't want when you right around the time you get to mastery, right? Yeah. Um, you'll start getting more flow in the system and uh, you'll add goals and goals are really the goal setting. Everybody loves the goal setting process. It produces a whole bunch of dopamine. It's, it's really painless. Um, grit skills is what you want to train next. You, the people start training grit a little too early. And the problem is, our grit supplies as humans are freaking endless. We can really train grit, as you know, from working with spec ops and, and professional athletes. Grit is immensely trainable. It's just kind of unpleasant to do. Um, we can extend it considerably. You don't want to start training it until you start getting more flow in the equation. 
Grit without flow mm. is burnout. Grit without suffering. flow is burnout. It's bur- no, no, it's literally burnout. I mean, suffering yeah, is right. bad enough, but because <laughs> suffering is unpleasant, but you get through right. it. Burnout is like a literal psychological shut. condition at this point, and yeah. it's a different thing. The system starts to shut down. You start going backwards no matter how hard you... So that's why you don't want to start layering in grit. And the other thing that's lost in the grit studies is there's six layers of grit. If you go out and actually start... in it, we, What we did is... I. We started to notice that in training up flow, flow was remarkably easy to train, but people would wobble with some of these internal skills, grit being one of them. And in researching grit, there are, so most people know about like perseverance, right? This is like, you know, I got- Is this level one of the six levels? Level one, yeah. Perseverance is like, and that's what most people think of as grit. So the next level is thought control. You gotta control what's going on in your brain. Also, it doesn't matter how perseverant you are in the world if you can't get a handle on what's going on in here. And they're different skill sets. They have to be trained differently. Eventually, they come together, but they're trainable. In the front end, you've got to train them differently. Then there's the grit to be your best when you're at your worst. That's essentially what they train Navy SEALs in Hell Week, right? That's the grit to be your best when you're at your worst. And it's a different set of skills. Then the grit uh, to train up your weaknesses. Right, we all have weak links in our armor. That's a different set of skills because weaknesses are specifically hard to train. Right, that even even if you're trying to be gritty, then there's um, all kinds of the grit to confront fear and start really negotiating with fear because fear, as you know, it's a fantastic tool once you have the fortitude to really deal with it. But if you don't, if you haven't developed that fortitude yet, you try to just like go at risk, go at fear. Yeah. It can crush a lot of people, right? This is why but, you But once wait. you build a, here's what I've learned. Once you build a relationship with fear, it's a great drinking buddy. Cause oh, I, it's I the, actually. It's, it's the greatest, uh, it's the, it's the greatest gift our biology gives us because it yes. tells us where to go next. Whatever. Yeah. Peak performers, <laughs> right? Yeah, again, so true. What, what, I mean, one, I always tell this to people, peak performers um, love working with grit because it gives you that, all, the, all this stuff, all these internal motivators, all these things we're talking about. What's the big freaking deal? You get focus for free. Focus for free. When we're passionate, we're paying attention automatically. When you're yep. curious, paying attention automatically. When you have autonomy, paying attention, right? Fear, think about when something scares you, it gets all of your attention and you don't even have to work one iota for it. So I always, <laughs> I always explain to people when I write a book, I always, I, there are always three challenges. There's the communication challenge. I got an idea. I got to communicate it with you. That's the first challenge. Second challenge is the uh, style challenge. I want to make it, it's art for me. So there's, I want to get the craft right. That's a second challenge. And then I always create a book challenge. Sometimes it's, can I write two books in a a year or three books in a year because those are really hard challenges um with bold which is a, a business book i wrote um challenge was really simple could i write a business fuck book i'd be happy to suck? write one book in a decade just to, just to, just to put it out there so you can brag all you like <laughs> yeah i don't know what to say to that um well yeah you should know because you've got a great I mean, I, you've got a great know, training yeah. program called flow yeah, Riders. Great, that's what you yeah, should be I, saying yeah, and i gotta tell you i mean so let me, let, here's, the, here's the thing that was explained to me. When I was in grad school, I got to study under a guy, uh, Stephen Dixon is his name, and he is 
in English, maybe in other languages, but in English at the time, the most published author in the history of the world. So Chekhov held the record with some ridiculous 300 published works. And this guy, Stephen Dixon, um, it was up to like 600 and some published works when I was studying under him. I mean, it's just crazy. And I'm not talking about like, you know, one of the, like his book Frog, which won the National Book Award in America. It's like, it's like this thick. It's huge. Like these are not even wow. small books. These aren't and articles. These are fucking, yeah, these, these are not ebooks. So these are like Bibles. My, my point is, I in grad school, I remember him talking to him once and he said, somebody said, how the hell have you done this? He said, it's easy. I added a page a day and I write a page a day. And if you do that, You'll have a book a year for the rest of your life. Mm, fuck, page a day. Fuck, that just that just humbled me, didn't it? Okay. Right? I mean, you're 365 days in a year. So true. What the fuck? Yeah, my book in a decade. It should be 10 books in a decade. All right. Well, you've just put me in my place. You've gone through the grit layers. Perseverance, thought control to be your best at your worst, to train up your weaknesses, control fear. What was number six? I'm intrigued. Uh, so the, this is counterintuitive. So oh, really counterintuitive, but uh, peak performers don't like to stop. One of the problems, if you get all your intrinsic motivators pointing in the same direction, right? Yeah. Is there's a shitload of fuel in the fire, right? You're, you're like, you're burning nitrous at that point and you're going, you're all turbo boosted all the time. And as you know, peak performance requires recovery. You need not only seven to eight hours of sleep a night, but peak performers need active recovery protocols. So Epsom salt mm. baths, saunas, walks in nature, uh, restorative yoga, massages, foam rolling, take your pick, right? We know this list. It's the grit to recover is the six grit skill. That's and so it's because strong. when you go, when you, right? And it's not that, I mean, everybody knows about recovery skills and we talk about, it, you hear it talked about, but it doesn't get put into play, which is why you have to train it as a grit skill because it's, freaking hard for peak performers. This is, by the way, when we do work with, with members of the special ops community, they are like, nobody's as guilty of this shit as they are. They yeah. cannot, they cannot shut it down. They cannot shut it down. They, and you also see this a lot in C-suite executives. And the result is, yeah, entrepreneurs are the yeah, other category. They fucking and just drive it. That so if you don't have an act, if you have an active recovery protocol and regular access to flow, it is incredibly hard to burn out. Mm -hmm. There's a couple reasons that will that will cause it, but if if, if you ha but regular access to flow and an active recovery protocol is essentially a prophylactic against burnout, which is such a problem with entrepreneurs and with executives. So um, the grit to recover is really important. So that's sort of. I'm so. By the I'm way, so go ahead. By the way, I, I should tell you we've just covered motivation. There's a learning section <laughs> that's just as thick. There's a creativity section that's just as thick. This and there's a flow gold. section that's just as quick. The one thing I want to tell you, because this seems like an overwhelming bunch of shit for anybody to learn. No, this is so, fucking phenomenal. Like this is for, for, the, for the people that love this shit. This is like pure. This is crystal. And here's, here's I, I'm not going to, I will not break this down any further, uh, but I will tell you as far as the book goes, there's a bunch of onboarding skills. There's a bunch of stuff that you have to do to get into the game, the passion stuff, the purpose stuff. We talked about that stuff. But once you get through the whole onboarding process and sort of get yourself set up to win, big performance really comes down to about six things that you have to do every day and about seven things every week. And most of the stuff you've got to do every day is either really quick stuff or stuff 
where you'll take other stuff that you were actually doing and it's just a way to approach that stuff. So in other words, it's really doable by almost everybody is the first mm -hmm. thing I'd like to point out. Um, it really, it really is. It's, it's a lot that where people get derailed by it, it seems like there are three places. The first is that the tools and techniques I talk about are not, they're not, they're not sexy. Man, there's no, there's no whiz bang technology. There's no cool, neat substance. Nothing I do. Magic you talk button. about it. You mean I just bar. can't press a button? Nope. And I mean, well, one is a. This is the second thing. There's no shortcut, right? This, mm -hmm. The peak performance is getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. That's it. There's no shortcuts. There's no hacks. That's so. That's out. It's not sexy, right? You talk about it on the bar on Friday night. It's not going to get you laid. Really, it won't. Like literally, like and have, these days, people want something sexy. They want something immediate. The third problem is that. Peak performance always works like compound interest, right? It's, mm. it's about doing the same set of six things every day, every day, every day, every day for months and 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 years and years and years. And that's how you, you know, that's how this gets done. It's really, it really is just about, it's not even, and the funny thing is, I always tell people this, I think the only thing worse uh, than the harder than the pursuit of excellence is uh, not pursuing excellence. To put it differently, and this was maybe what, no, what we can close like with. Out of this. I like to tell people that we are biologically hardwired for peak performance. We are biologically hardwired to go after high hard goals. We are biologically hardwired to try to live up to our full capability. And uh, the psychologist Abraham Maslow put that in a really great way, very, he summed it up really nicely. He said, whatever a person can be, they must be. And mm -hmm. here's, what I, here, here's the most important thing about that. The system is designed to go big. Turns out not going big, not using the system the way it was designed is bad for us. And I don't mean in a, in a I mean, in a concrete, hardcore, serious way. Let me give you an example. We've just talked about all the motivation stuff, so this is gonna be easy to explain. There are epidemic levels of anxiety and depression in the world today, as you know, right? One out of 10 adults is gonna be diagnosed over the next year. Somebody kills themselves once every 12 seconds, right? This is a giant plague and we're failing to solve it. There are eight major causes of anxiety and depression and they're well-established. Two of them get all the attention, which are uh, genetics or trauma, right? Genetics is my genetics are wrong. Can't make enough serotonin. I'm depressed. Trauma is this terrible thing happened. I can't get past it. And yet, if you look at the data, very almost impossible that genetics leads to anxiety, depression alone. Genetics can only always be about 50% of it. And the other 50% are usually lifestyle causes and trauma. The vast majority of the time, trauma leads to post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress. Right, trauma mean it's this is like the world breaks everyone, and afterwards many are stronger in the broken places. The Hemingway quote, and it's really many. Right now, look at the other six causes, major causes of anxiety and depression. What are they? Let me one of them, top one, lack of meaningful work. What does that mean under the hood? It's work that you're not curious about. That's not aligned with your passion that's not aligned with your purpose, that you don't have the autonomy to pursue the way you want, that doesn't afford the opportunity for mastery and it doesn't produce flow. That's what we mean by lack of meaningful work at a neurobiological level. 
alt, lack of meaningful values are another one. This is a lack of purpose and a lack of blah, blah. In other words, we are designed to go big. Not going big is bad for us, and we pay for it in anxiety and depression. Mm. Mate, you literally have pulled so much together. Um, and when you said in the beginning, this is 30, 30 years of research pulled together, um, I won't say I was skeptical. I was like, this will be interesting. But to hear even just a small piece of this is phenomenal. And I just want to point to the part that really hit me the most. I read a book, I think it was about 2002, 2003, called The Powerful Engagement, where they created the framework around the business or the entrepreneurial athlete and looking at how important active recovery is. And you're the first person that I've spoken to in probably yeah, maybe 15 years that is actually highlighted that as a part of performance out. Because here's the thing, most athletes know this, right? Most athletes know the importance of active recovery, but most entrepreneurs don't, you know, and yeah. right now. And, it, and I, you know, it's funny because um, I spend my, you know, I'm like you, I spend a lot of time with professional athletes. I ski with professional athletes all winter long. I mountain bike with them all summer long. Um, and, uh, and you know, I got to train, if you're chasing pro athletes around mountains, you got to be in that kind of shape and you got to train for that and do all that. And you know what that entails. I will tell you that I think I end up recovering more from hard weeks at work than I do from chasing world-class athletes around mountains. Right. Um, I always, so you I need more to, recovery from your well, work than you do. From let me, yeah. I mean, let me give you an And now I think that's an important distinction. And, and let me give you a simple example. I'm, uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, PR press, right? Talking yeah. guys like you, this kind of stuff. Every hour on stage psychologically burns about eight hours of energy. Like we know this and it's because we process wow. social stress in the same place we process physical stress. So if you're standing up in front of people and giving presentations, um, that is an incredibly from an energy perspective, that's incredibly stressful to the body. You ever wonder why leaders of countries age so quickly? Like, right, you look at the before and after photos of like presidents and prime ministers and whatever, and you're yeah, like, what the fuck happened sense, to you, right? Yeah. yeah, that's what happened to them. They, they're in front of the camera, they're in front of people, and it's literally, it's, the, this is a really weird thing, and we can sort of end with this, but it, it sort of, it's a weird biological thing. I, when I said that, physical pain and social, social pain, social, physical pain, like pain of physical injury versus pain of social embarrassment or whatever they're processing the same structures as the brain. That sounds like a crazy thing until you realize that if you go back 300 years ago, if you were like 300 years ago, you're living with the, in your village and you screw up and piss people off and get exiled, you're dead. Nobody mm -hmm. lives away from the tribe. That's a capital crime. So until very recently, social fears, were, are treated as right mm. primal, right? This is why, this is, here's the big mystery. Why the fuck should fear of public speaking be the number one fear in the world? From an evolutionary perspective, it should be fear of getting eaten by a grizzly bear, right? Or something, oh, great white. Something like that should be, right? From every thing we know about evolution, and yet it's public speaking, and it's, this is why. So, mm -hmm. for example, with entrepreneurs, especially, you see this a lot, I'll, I'll show, you'll know this exactly, especially ones who are pitching. You're going around and you do it like the show in front of VC after VC after VC after VC, all that stuff. That is massively taxing, massively taxing because it's the same level of risk internally as physical danger. Every time you stand up in front of a room full of strangers and pitch your ideas, your brain thinks you're in physical danger. 
That's how it's processed mm -hmm. in the event. So you need to recover as if that's what's going on. That yeah, when, so when I mean, I, the work they did on the corporate athlete that, that and energy and that stuff, um, I often think that the work I do is, because they were, that was great biology at the time in the 1990s. At the they were, time, they, yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was back in the 90s when they were doing that work. Um, it's very old, but I really like that work. Like they were, they were looking at the same sort of, you know, it was the same sorts of pursuits that, that I'm, I'm just later on in that chain 30 years, right? And we just learned that like, okay, it's a whole lot more than just energy that, that's in this equation, but that's a huge... Uh, you know, it's it's sort of a like there's on the energy side, there's three things that matter. You have to get seven, eight hours of sleep a night. You need um, good hydration, nutrition, and you need good social support. Most people don't mm. know this. So social support mm. actually um, has an energy cost for us. The reason is whenever we go into a, yeah, a stressful, true. whenever you solve a problem, when I if I challenge you, uh, your brain performs a threat assessment. It wants to know, is this a threat? Is this a challenge? You know what I mean? Is this, how big is this problem, right? And so one of the things your brain wants to know is, well, do I have posse around to help me solve this challenge, right? If you've got a robust social support network or you have good, it doesn't mean you have lots of connections. You just have a few solid ones, people who love you and who, you know what I mean? Your brain goes, oh, you've got, you got people around to help it, uh, and it gives you more energy there's a cost to not maintaining good social support. So that's a sort of a peak performance mm. basic. One of the things we talk about that a little bit in the art of impossible. Mate, I got to get this book. I've got to get my hands on this fucking book. Um, it's about time, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and business owners started, you know, treating themselves like professional athletes because they're getting paid to play a game, you know, like esports. it's a professional sport to me. Entrepreneurship is a professional sport. And the fact that we can finish on that is incredible. So the art of impossible, mate, where can we go to get a, our hands on a copy? Amazon. Everybody should go to Amazon. Um, Amazon.com. All right, we'll put a link uh, below. We'll also put a link in there for the Flow Riders course and uh, Zero to Dangerous, another course that you run as well. Stephen, mate, I know you've got a very busy schedule. To me, this has actually been the most exciting podcast I've done this year, if not in the last two years, and even better than the first one. Thank you so much for your time, mate. And if there's one thing you want to leave the listeners with, what would it be? I Buy just, what I've learned over <laughs> But no, no, but buy the book, but seriously, in 30 years of doing this, the one thing I want to leave you with is the thing I learn over and over and over again is that we are all capable of so much more than we know. Mm. That's the lesson I learn over and over and over again. But I always say this, human potential is invisible, especially to ourselves, right? We only find out we're capable by stretching our skills to the utmost again and again and again. That's how human potential, human capability is actually revealed. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Kotler, this has been Unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning 
and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly. So if you'd like to find out more information, KerwinRay.com.